The Vulture TV podcast is sponsored by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper mattresses come with free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. And right now, get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash vulture and using the promo code vulture. The Vulture TV podcast is also sponsored by audible.com who has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free download of the short story Summer Farmer from this summer's White Man's Problems by visiting audible.com slash summerfarmer. The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm your host, Gazella Mami. On this week's show, we'll look at all the times TV really messed with our minds. Then we'll assess the first season of USA's breakout hit, Mr. Robot. You've got to help me get out of this. There's something about her. I feel like she can hear us. That's all coming up, but first, if you have any questions for us or ideas for topics you'd like to hear, please email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. As usual, we're here with Vulture's TV columnist Margaret Lyons and TV critic Matt Zoller Seitz. Hey. Hello. I thought we were all going to wear hoodies this week. I know. I'm so sorry, Matt. I realized that when I saw you walk my son, in. My son's in the uh, He's booth with the producer. Too. He's wearing a hoodie. Yeah. Too. It was, first of all, too warm for a hoodie. And yeah. second of all, the only hooded sweatshirt I really have is like neon orange, which didn't feel like it fit in Mr. <laughs> Robot's aesthetic. We've let you down once again, Matt. No, no. It's quite all right. <laughs> He's going to continue with Matt's theme dressing for yes. the rest of the podcast. The, yeah, I the... can't wait till we get to Game of Thrones. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot of options there. There sure are. Some yeah. of them saucy. <laughs> Not all safe for work. Mm. So we've been talking a lot about TV shows that kind of fuck with your mind in the context of Mr. Robot. So we thought this would be a good opportunity to talk about all those times in TV history when this has happened, because it felt like it had been a long time since it had happened when we saw it in Mr. Robot. So just to start, can you talk about what constitutes like a real honest-to-goodness twist? I mean, I think it's anything that, that reframes how the show operates in your head. Like, if you could go back and, like, check if that works out, right? So it's not a twist when, like, two characters who had never kissed before kiss because that doesn't, like, betray what has been laid out beforehand. But finding out in episode eight of Mr. Robot that, you know, Christian Slater's character is just, like, a product of Elliot's mental illness, then you do want to, like, go back and, like, check, right? You're like, really? And obviously, like, I think Mr. Robot does a really good job of being like, yeah, really? And if you go back and check, it completely holds up and it's clear that that was, like, baked into the show from the moment that the show starts. But as a fan, that was, like, a theory that some people advanced, but I think you could still watch and enjoy the show without necessarily subscribing to that theory until it became true and not just, like, a sort of crackpot idea. And I think that these kinds of twists are rare because television goes on for a long time. And so, you know, the twist that would happen in a movie or something, right, you can bake into a movie from the get-go, but it's hard on a TV show if you haven't baked in this twist from the pilot, basically, to then come up with one later on in a show. And then to kind of sustain whatever twist you have introduced. Whereas, like, you know, on The Sixth Sense, you can end the movie or... (laughs) Right, and that's usually the place where the twist occurs is close to the end of the story or at the very, very beginning. And I'm actually, it was funny, I had a much harder time thinking of comparable examples to what Mr. Robot Mm -hmm. has done than I thought I would because 
There have been a number of instances on shows that I've watched where they have suddenly realigned my perception of what I thought the show was going to be. And a lot of that has to do with a show that operates in a certain genre and you think it's going to be another representative of however that genre usually does things. And then all of a sudden, they basically smack you across the face and go, no, we're doing something else. And the pilot of The Shield, the the end of the pilot of The Shield is a great example of that. And the Sopranos episode, College, which is the one where... Uh, Tony Soprano is touring colleges with Meadow, and he finds a mob informer and strangles him to death. Like, that That to mm-hmm. me is a—I consider that a kind of a mind fuck. just because at the time, it's much more common now, but the lead character of a show doesn't personally strangle somebody to death while he's on a college tour with his daughter, you know? Right. So that's—to me, that's like—and and in, in a very different way, because it, it obviously it has this historical basis, in fact— Putting the shooting of Wild Bill at the end of the fourth episode of the first season of Deadwood, you know, obviously we know, if you know anything about Western history, you know Wild Bill Hickok got shot in exactly those circumstances. But I didn't think that they were going to put Keith Carradine in the role of Wild Bill Hickok and kill him off. And and that just established that the show was uh, not afraid to kill off somebody as major as that. <laughs> right. I mean, and the other obvious one that comes to mind is Game of Thrones with Ned Stark in season one. Yeah. But then that show kind of But that doesn't... Lost, those, like, like, those aren't twists That's twist not a twist. Right? No, it's like, really not. It's a, it's a, it's playing with the structure it, or perceptions, but it's not, uh, it's not like you're turning the whole thing inside out. It did feel a little bit like that to me on Game of Thrones, where you're like, you kind of expect the show to revolve around him if you haven't read the books. And then it happens and you think, what is the show going to revolve around now? I think there were still enough other people. I mean, I would say the bigger twist, and I, I don't really think of any of these as twists a la Mr. Robot, but I do feel like the pilot of The Shield, where I feel like we're going to need to put a warning in this episode that we spoil a lot of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) The biggest things that happen on episodes. Well, it's interesting, but it's in the pilot of The Shield where Mm -hmm. um, earmuffs, if you haven't watched this, but Terry, played by Reed Diamond, gets shot. And you, in all of the promos for that show, it just looked like he was one of, like, the gang, right? Like, that was like, oh, he's part of the cop ensemble. And then they shoot him. Like, it's not just like an accidental shooting, like... One of the it's an execution, yeah. So someone on the strike, t- and so you're just like, oh my god, this is like a really different show than I was expecting. Whereas for Mr. Robot, that twist is like, oh, everything that's happened before this has a different meaning than I initially understood. It's different. It's much more like a movie twist. It's more mm-hmm. of a well, you know, I, clearly we know the influences, and we're going to get into them because we're going to talk about Mr. Robot, but. Movies like uh, Fight Club or The Sixth Sense or... or uh, Old Boy. Yeah, I mean, th- those are the kinds of things. That's the kind of mode that this show is operating in. It's something much closer to, you know, what I called in my review, uh, cinema de dude bro. <laughs> you know, it's like artistically very adventurous filmmaking that's also trying to be awesome. I do think the one instance that I did consider a twist, and I've been thinking about it a lot, especially since this episode aired, um, is on Lost, but not... Not when they discover that the island's crazy. It's when Henry discovers that one of the people on the island is not on the manifest. Because to that point, we had considered the island uninhabited, right? Like, we didn't know that there was, Mm -hmm. like, I can't remember if we already had heard Rousseau's radio signal or whatever, but we didn't know that anyone we were interacting with on the show had already been on the island, and one of them is one of the others. Mm -hmm. And I remember that moment being like, what? Who? Like, it's Ethan. Um, And then you're like, oh, the guy who's the creepiest? (laughs) Like, my bad. They did a lot of kind of, uh, lost at a lot of that sort of thing. The hat, too. Lost pulled that a lot. Desmond? Yeah, Yeah, I mean, that that to me is like a continuation of, like, oh, this island is not uninhabited. And it's not merely, like, mythical. There's also, like, 
I mean, obviously, this is all going to get really messed up as Lost <laughs> progresses through its series. But early on, when I think those episodes did have a lot of like structural integrity, I think the Desmond stuff is more a continuation of other people do live here. And the twist was this island is not right. uninhabited. And I right. mean, you wrote about how, like with Lost, the problem became not being able to sustain the, these kinds of twists and none of it making any sense. And do you have any fear that that will happen with Mr. Robot? I think Mr. Robot is telling a smaller story. Mm-hmm. Um, it only has fewer episodes per season, too, which doesn't hurt when you're dealing with this kind of really, like, knotted, gnarled storytelling. I, I was going to say dense. It's yeah. very dense. You know, and I'm somebody who, as a personal preference, prefers long seasons. But I think for a show like Mr. Robot, I'd rather have... 30 excellent episodes over the course of three seasons than 45 mediums, you know? Yeah, or ones where they're just sort of running out the clock. Yeah, or filler mm-hmm. episodes or ones where it's like, I don't care about that guy. I never cared about this person. Or, you know, stuff where it's just like, ha, ah, what Honestly, else is left? Yeah. Who can we? <laughs> and that's how you wind up with, you know, like weird asides about like somebody getting kidnapped for two weeks or whatever. And you're just like, I don't care. Right. You know, I, I don't want to watch Mr. Robot tread water certainly i'd rather have a few because it's such a propulsive show i think especially you know you'd feel very i would feel very frustrated if it was just like floating around you want it to be driving towards Mm -hmm. something that's the whole feeling of the show that's the great challenge or conundrum of scripted storytelling on tv right now is that the creators of the show have to trust themselves and have the trust of the network or the distributor or whoever to decide how much time this story is really worth and not to artificially prolong it because a season is supposed to be a certain number of episodes or a show they or they want the show to run a certain number of seasons and that's really really hard to do and I'm sure the people who make these shows doubt themselves at times as well I don't think I've ever seen a show where I thought they didn't have enough episodes to tell that story except in rare cases Catastrophe. like we talked season, about this well I thought that was just the right amount of story for six episodes. And we know it'll come back. And we know it's going to come back, but it wasn't the case. I think if it had been 12 instead, I might have been complaining that that was too many. Maybe, but I think it could have done eight, given how rushed the final episode felt. There was a lot of story, I think, that I still wanted from pregnancy and not from child rearing that the show did not get to. Okay, I'll take your point. I guess what what I'm trying to say is that I have more often experienced the sensation of watching a show and going, okay, we didn't need two episodes for that story or we didn't right. need a season like what was the point of half of this half of a season even on shows that i like i have that reaction i had you know as much as i love breaking bad and the sopranos there were episodes or subplots where i'm like okay you could have compressed this into 15 minutes we didn't need two weeks yeah i mean scandal that happens that all the, it's just like <laughs> recycling the same ideas and stories over and over again. I, you know, it's like candy to me. I just keep watching, but it's, you wonder where they're going in a certain sense and how, when that will get old. I think, I I mean, mean, I think for Scandal, the frustrating thing is that it always comes back to basically neutral, that no matter how far mm -hmm. afield we get and how crazy stuff gets and who gets murdered, that we all wind up coming back to a place that feels very much like the place the story started. Right. And, you know, I think for Breaking Bad, that was less true for me. And that's why I think those digressions didn't bother me as much, because it still felt like when the digression ended or that arc that you didn't care for ended, we still had moved very far forward in the story. Yes. That what was happening was still happening the whole time through, rather than the feeling of like, oh, we could just like excise this portion of the story and nothing would really change. And if you're a fan of a show... That's a really frustrating sensation of mm-hmm. like, OK, we went through all of that just to get back to where we were. 
it has to be something really interesting or really charming for that to have felt worth it to me. Well, we've we've wandered a little bit far afield of our original question, so why I'm going to take us a little <laughs> further into the dark woods here. <laughs> yeah. This whole question of television being repetitive is a really fascinating one for me because there's art and then there's life. And the way that we tend to like our art, our commercial art, commercially viable art, is not like life. We want it to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. We want there to be linear forward progress. Maybe it's towards a positive goal. I would say in 90% of stories it is. But then there's also the tragedies or the black comedy, something like Breaking Bad, where the hero is gradually progressing from an essentially good state to an essentially chaotic or evil one. And that's an interesting story to tell, too. But there's always this sense of inexorable forward motion. But uh, one of the things that TV is also good at, and the best, some of the best dramas and a few of the best comedies have demonstrated this, like The Sopranos and Seinfeld and Mad Men, is how we are, as you said, in a different context, Margaret, continually returning to the same place in some form. And like this idea, and I, it was funny because you were saying, that, you know, whole sections of a show that you feel like you could excise because basically they're returning to the same place. There are entire sections of my life that I feel like could excise because they return me <laughs> to the same place where it's like, oh, my God, I'm here again. Really? And it's tough. It's really, really tough. And I don't know what makes certain shows that practice that kind of circular return to the place where you were storytelling valid and interesting as opposed to just repetitious, mm-hmm. like they're just tre- like treading water is a term we keep using, or running in place, and what makes them feel incredibly true. But by the same token, a story that has an inexorable forward momentum is really, really thrilling, even though it's artificial and we know it's not necessarily true to the way we live our lives. We've kind of talked about this on Mad Men a little bit, like the idea of the same cycles but there is also on that show kind of there is movement i think there's a clear sense of consequence on mad men Mm -hmm. and that when people repeat patterns somebody else is not part of it that time so even though don is repeating his same patterns peggy maybe is outside of it this time saying like hey cut that shit out or betty's not alongside him that time and he doesn't get that immediate validation that he had gotten before and we see sort of him repeating behavior without the show itself repeating behavior is i think the distinction i'm trying to draw right he's changing the context of the behavior yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there's character integrity, right? So we're all going to sort of behave the ways that we behave. But I think for other less good shows, what happens is all of the stakes get raised and then eliminated. And mm. then suddenly the stakes are also gone. And <laughs> right. And so with, I think, Mad Men, I never felt like the stakes got eliminated, that the stakes changed and there were certain cumulative. things about. Yeah. And that for each character, we always had at least something of importance happening to them that they perceived as important, whether or not we would perceive it as important. And I think on Scan what happens a lot of the time is that we raise these stakes to these incredibly high levels and then we just like move on and then we do it again and we move on and we do it again and and every time it happens no one is like hey why does this keep happening to us (laughs) like there's no it's like wait you've been through all of this stuff and we're still gonna have the fight that was in the pilot basically and you know we were killing people we killed children on that show and then we're still back where the stakes are exactly the same and the ideas are exactly the same and the motivations feel exactly the same. And yeah, it it doesn't feel like the kind of thing where it's like, well, talk about it with your therapist and explore why you keep repeating these behavioral patterns. It's like, oh, the show is not sure where to go forward. Yeah, it's hard. It's really, really hard. And and there is, I will say, a special kind of disappointment or even betrayal that I feel when I'm watching a show that I think has the kind of awareness that you're talking about, Margaret. And it turns out that it doesn't. We're just where it was just playing me. You know, it was like, oh, like Homeland is a great example. Oh, boy. Homeland is a great example. Boy, oh boy, oh boy, did I get rooked by Homeland. 
that first season was pretty amazing. That it first really was amazing. Really good. All the way up to the last few minutes, and I think he should have blown himself up, or he should have been arrested, and the, that should have been the end of it, probably. And we now know that Showtime went to the creators of the show and said, "Don't kill Brody. We want to keep this show going." Which, in retrospect, seems like the catastrophic creative mistake of that series that it should have just ended right there but there were never stakes in the way that you're talking about on that show which is bizarre yeah which is bizarre which is bizarre like the characters got for me they got more and more miserable and sort of uh, inept in some ways but i didn't feel that the show is continually recontextualizing the behavior of the characters in a way that makes for really good drama you didn't in, think the first season, season had stakes? Oh, no, no. Two, seasons like two and three oh, okay, is what I'm sure. talking about. I was like, season one is exclusively you know, like, stakes. That's the best part oh, of it. Oh, God, no. No, no. <laughs> season one is perfection. Yeah. Perfection yeah. or close to it. But no, two or three, like you get to season two and Brody is now, I guess, the advisor to the vice president of the United States and thus uniquely positioned to wreak havoc on behalf of the terrorists who control him. And what do they do? They're sending him off like to strangle a guy in the woods. Yeah. You know, it's just it's dumb. It's like it it makes me think the entire show is dumb. Well, it also I mean, I feel like we're just like looking for stuff to bitch about. But great. <laughs> My favorite kind of party. Um, I think for Homeland, so much of the show was about what happens in a surveillance state and what happens to people doing surveillance and not just in like the traditional like government like police van outside way, but also in the way of like if you're always observing people. Right. So not just like real surveillance, but also just the human process of observation, what that does to people who are doing the observing and what that does to people who are being observed. Yeah. Right? That's a really major theme in the entire series. And then for the climax of season two, where he kills the vice president, it's not on cat. Like, it's the one moment of the entire series under which there's zero surveillance yes. in a situation where there would actually be surveillance. Yes, there so would be just, audio. They would be taping so the, it, I mean, it was, audio and video. It was probably. just such a weird, like, refusal to be real in a way that the show had been so adamant about being real the rest of the time. It just struck me as, like, such bullshit. I don't mind things that are, like, crazy and interesting, but I do mind things that are, like, nah, just go along with it. It's like, no, that's a privilege you earn by being credible yes. and like having sustained world building and a point like I'm happy to watch shows in which people come back from the dead or someone is a magical whatever like I was just talking before this that I've watched like 20 episodes of Joan of Arcadia in the last couple of days. It's a great show. It's so good. <laughs> right but I'm not like uh, excuse me I don't think God talks to teenagers. It's like no I don't right like, <laughs> like do I think God talks to teenagers? No I do not but I'm happy to watch a show about that because the show says like it does and this is how that works and and it doesn't bullshit itself out of it. One of my most vivid, ridiculous memories of movie going in New York was going to see the Jean-Claude Van Damme film Sudden Death at a Times Square movie theater. <laughs> and I came out of it and I was behind two guys who were very excitedly listing all the incidents in the movie where somebody <laughs> fired X number of bullets from a gun that actually didn't hold that number of bullets. <laughs> and it's like, you're looking for plausibility in a Jean-Claude Van Damme film. You've come to the... You just, you know, just stay home. Just stay home. Don't don't even go. <laughs> But we'll roll. We'll roll with anything if it's if the context is right for it. And I also think character stability is a big part of it for me. Like I tend to be more interested in shows with strong characters than necessarily in shows with strong mysteries or plot. Like I, I'd rather watch a show about interesting people not doing a whole lot of anything than watch a show where it's like the setup is crazy and amazing, but all the people are like total herbs. Right? I'm really tired of crazy, amazing setups. Honest to God, and I, I feel don't like wanna, we've I, come back to The Walking Dead suddenly. We have. Well, and, and I don't want to see any more scenes where like an incredibly super competent brilliant evil person goes into a police station and gives themselves up i don't ever want to see that again you know there's like a whole long list of these sort of like 
cliches of, of genre that I don't want to see again. And I do feel like one of the one of the really, really bad legacies of Lost is that suddenly the puzzle box narrative became the thing. It just became the thing. And we're still seeing vestiges of that in a lot of shows. Where, I mean, where coming like, this fall, there's a couple definitely fitting in that sort of, how will the mystery be resolved? And it's like, oh boy, you better do this well, because you have so many shows that have done it badly behind you. Like, you cannot still fuck this one up. Well, and the mystery is almost always not as interesting as the behavior that led up to the revelation of what the mystery is. And we'll talk about this a little bit more in our next segment. But first, a word from our sponsors. The Vulture TV podcast is sponsored by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing the savings directly onto the customer. That's you. Casper mattresses are obsessively engineered and sold at a shockingly fair price. They have just the right sink and just the right bounce. Two technologies, latex foam and memory foam, come together for better nights and brighter days. Buying a Casper mattress is completely risk-free. Casper offers free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. Statistically, lying on a bed for four minutes in a showroom has no correlation to whether it's the right bed for you. That's why Casper has turned the buying process into a risk-free experience. Casper understands the importance of truly trying out a mattress. After all, you spend a third of your life on it. Casper mattresses are also made in America. Plus, they start at $500 for a twin-size mattress and $950 for a king-size. Compare that to the industry average. It's a great price. Vulture TV podcast listeners, that's you, can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash vulture and using the promo code vulture. So there was nothing particularly new, I would say, in the finale of Mr. Robot. It felt like a lot of setup for the next season. I thought that Coda was a surprise. You're right. It was new, but it felt like it was like a cliffhanger type. You're right, though. That was it was new. It was definitely new information to us as opposed to like, let's watch Elliot process all of this. It was definitely a set him up, not part of a knock him down. Yes. I felt like it was a series of small scenes, a lot of which were really well done, like the opening with the therapist and that cheater and the the one between Joanna and Elliot was, I think, a lot of people's favorite. The on-air suicide. And then, of course, B.D. Wong embedded within E-Court. Before we get into talking about season one as a whole, what did you think of this as a finale? I thought it was really good. I thought it was really good. And I was considerably less taken with the second half of season one than I was with the first. The first really, really knocked me out. And I'd never seen anything like it. And the deeper we got into season one, the more I felt like I've seen this before in some way. And that's not to say that it wasn't well done. It's very, very, very well done. But I wasn't sensing that pulse of originality that made me so excited. And there's no way I can put this where the words aren't going to be taken out of context. I love the show. I think it's an amazing show. I just think, like, oh, we're on track for this to be one of the great first seasons ever. And now I don't think it was. But it was Mm. still really good. Because you were not a fan of the Christian Slater reveal. No. Okay. I wasn't. I I, just wasn't. I felt that that was less interesting to me than the sister. The sister reveal was more surprising. And then what I liked about it was less at the reveal and more, like, it felt like this cloud had been lifted and we were seeing reality like, you know, that opening scene in that episode where Angela and Darlene are taking a ballet class together, it was a moment where I was like, huh, this is setting up a whole new world that I did not realize existed. And just feeling like we've been watching things through Elliot's kind of cloud 
view of the world. And then suddenly to see how everything is operating around him. It was more significant to me in terms of what this said about his mental state as opposed to, you know, this is crazy and this is exciting. I agree with that. I wish there were a little more clarity in how they went about that. And in fact, there were some moments where I was watching season one where uh, I was especially impressed with the use of point of view on the show. And so much of it was from his point of view and everything was sort of subjectively warped. Mm -hmm. Um, But then we actually got a few scenes where we were uh, that really felt to me like it was Terrell's point of view. There were just a few, not very many. And then there was a moment where it seemed like two points of view were overlapping, which as we see, I believe it's a scene of Terrell picking up that, that young coworker at the club, uh, and there's a piece of narration by Elliot over that, which implies that it's Elliot's point of view. And I don't like to be too mathematically regimented in how we divide these things up, but I found that a little sloppy mm-hmm. or, or, or unthinking maybe is the word. I do like this idea of the cloud being lifted that now we're seeing Elliot perhaps as the world sees him rather than the way Elliot sees the world. I think that's cool. I hope they're really rigorous in how they explore mm-hmm. that, like like clearly delineating what is Elliot's point of view and what is the world's point of view on him. How did you think they handled that in the finale? You know, you have these scenes with him pushing Christian Slater up against the wall, but then you see it for I didn't real. Like that. I didn't like yeah. that stuff. I didn't like that stuff. I've just, like, I saw A Beautiful Mind. I saw Fight Club. I've seen, you know, I've just, I've seen this. I've seen this. And and it disappointed me because uh, where before I felt like they were toying with and referencing things that I had seen before and doing their own thing with it. It's like I've seen Ed Norton punching himself in the face in Fight Club. You know, like right. I, like I've seen this, and and it's beneath them. I know they're. I, I'm sorry to be an asshole about it, but they have so much imagination, so much originality, so many great, deep, interesting things to say. Don't be doing this film school shit. Just don't. It's beneath you, really. <laughs> and, and there are moments when you know, again, the the moment between Joanna and Elliot. We actually have a clip of that. Let's let's play that first. What did you say your name was? Molly. What were you working on with my husband? You've got to help me get out of this. There's something about her. I feel like she can hear us. One of my advice, you know, about the hack that's going on right now. When was the last time you saw him? She's lying to me. He isn't coming. She's fishing for something. I'm not sure. Last week, I think. Really? You know, between you and me, I'm a little concerned for Terrell. Was he acting strange when you saw him? No. That's funny. Because he was acting very strange. When you're hearing what he's saying, when he's thinking in his head, he's saying, you know, there's something about her. I feel like she can hear us. And you're watching him react to what she's saying. Those are the moments that give me better understanding into his character and kind of builds anxiety and builds character as opposed to seeing that he has this hallucination of his father. Right. 
How many times did you guys rewind it to see if you could understand what she was saying? <laughs> she was definitely not speaking English. Yeah, which I discovered after like nine rewinds. I was like cranking it. I was like, let me try it with headphones. Yeah, like, no, I, I, yeah. Was like, I put the subtitles oh. on. I figured that I, I got that the first time. I did not. And... Sam Esmail, the creator, has said that they're going to explore her character more. And I'm super excited for that. I think my favorite characters are Joanna, White Rose, and Elliot. Maybe Tyrell, although... I'm not as like, into I, his character. I, I don't like Tyrell as much as I did early in the season because I felt like they, they jumped the shark a few times. We're only one season in, and yeah. I felt like they jumped. You know, him raping and murdering somebody on the roof, you know, the wife of the CTO was just... I that, That's like, can the show recover from that? That just seems that just seemed ridiculous to me. It just seemed... It would seem too much. It just seemed like too much. Probably a lot of people are going to disagree with me on that, but that seemed like just doing things to be awesome. Yeah. You know? And you also... You wrote about the whole Shayla plot line. It's yeah. Like, Shayla's not my fave. I don't yeah. like... I don't like that... I don't like them sticking his girlfriend in the trunk. Again, it's trite. It's trite. Yeah. It's beneath them. Like, they're summoning such interest and such power not doing that kind of stuff. Why do they feel the need to do that kind of stuff are they afraid that maybe they're just afraid they're going to get canceled now they've been picked up for a second season maybe they won't feel the need to resort to that what do you guys think about angela's character i have was more interested in the beginning and then i found it a little bit difficult to understand her motivations but what did you think of her storyline she was like again i feel like matt does like i really really like this show and i really like so much about it and then when we're talking about it, i'm like i don't like this part i don't like this part i don't like this part angela to me held like the sort of least water of any of the characters i felt like they like pushed so hard for like she wants justice for her mother's death and it's like okay and it's like oh also she's like you know she has this boyfriend he's kind of a dumbass and then she works here she works at this other place and then the guy's selling her she, and it's just like a lot of other information about her that to me felt like invention and not discovery mm. um, right it didn't like enrich my understanding of her it was just like piling on of things and not really like a oh what does it say about her her character doesn't seem fully baked yet. yeah you know and I definitely got that uh, although I will say that the scenes between her and the boss with the anklet, uh, forget his name. Oh, when she oh, goes to the Terry, house? Terry Colby. Yes, mm-hmm. Colby, sorry. Oh, that was that was one of my favorite scenes in the series. That was when great. she shows all, up at his house and they're like going back and forth. That was All just of like those a, scenes oh. were great. And also he captured a particular kind of arrogance that you find among rich guys of that social class. I mean, like they really, really nailed it. And I will say that's one thing the show is absolutely brilliant at is nailing particular social types that maybe you didn't even realize were types. I you think know. some of us realized that was a type. Now. <laughs> <laughs> like, come on. Like, How rich about... douche? Yeah, that's a type. Well, that wasn't what I was referring to. But... <laughs> yeah. So let's talk a little bit about our hopes for season two. But first, let's take a word from our sponsors. The Vulture TV podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, home of more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. One book we think you might like is called White Man's Problems by Kevin Morris. Nine poignant vignettes of modern life in nouveau riche LA and the working class East Coast are brought to life by Hollywood's brightest. The audiobook features performances by Trey Parker, Matt Stone, John McGinley, Josh Holloway, Pete Yorn, Minnie Driver, Sarah Polly, and the author Kevin Morris himself. Plus, Matthew McConaughey's performance of Summer Farmer, one of the book's nine stories, is available as a free audio download through September 30th. Get it at audible.com slash summerfarmer. So what are your guys' hopes and dreams for for season two? So the, one of the things I didn't love in the finale 
were the flipping back and forth like Matt was talking about of like watching him beat himself up or whatever. It, it wasn't that interesting to me to see how the world looks through my eyes in their world. But I do want to see how more of the world looks through Darlene's eyes. Part of me imagined season two is like Ms. Robot starring Darlene. And it's like more from her perspective because mm-hmm. I think we got like a real sense of Elliot's deal. And that was, I think, very well done. And I don't want to, like, not have Elliot on the show, obviously. But I think the Darlene character, who at first seemed like sort of a sidekick and whatever, knowing now more that she's, like, also a caretaker in some capacity and wanting to know more about, like, what is the experience of being alongside your brother who has really struggled with, like, severe mental illness for what appears to be a lot of his adult life, maybe his young life, too, you know, being in this role of we have all of these things in common, we share this passion for hacking and this knack for it and blah, 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 but also, like, I'm responsible for him because our parents are dead and we're all he the other one has. You know, when she's like, oh, is it happening again? It's like, ooh, shit, this has happened before. And, you know, that's a really heavy burden. And I think that the way the show deals with Elliot's perspective has been fascinating. But I think Darlene has the same politics in a lot of ways, maybe like even more anarchist leanings. But I also think that the idea of to whom you're beholden and to whom she's responsible and that, you know, she doesn't have Mm -hmm. um, the same kind of like escape option that Elliot has where he can insist that he like retreat to this like pocket of mental illness where he can see his family on the screen in Times Square like that's not an option for Darlene as far as we can tell that that she doesn't have the chance to be gone for three days or whatever the way Elliot can no but she does have the option to retreat into her own mind and that's something that I hope that the show explores to me what made the first The first five episodes so great was that we were almost completely immersed in the consciousness of one person, which is something that you almost never see on a TV show. Usually they'll give you snippets of voiceover, but it's just as a means of patching holes in the exposition. And here they really used it to flesh out the psychology, the mindset, the worldview of this character. And that's something they could conceivably do with every character. They started to do it with Terrell. They could do it with Darlene. They could do it with uh, almost anybody, really. And I, and also, I wouldn't mind that seeing them take a, like a uh, an approach similar to The Wire, where season one we're mostly in the head of Elliot and we're on the ground level with these hackers. But then maybe we move into Evil Core. I mean, if season two was that, White Rose, that'd be cool. It's, that would be, be like, great. I, and going. they could do that, yeah. and they could always keep returning to Elliot. And also, I just hope that this business of We see Elliot as the world sees him, and he's running around yelling at invisible people and choking himself in coffee shops. Like, that, to me, felt like a betrayal, not just because I've seen it in other movies, but also because it made it less believable to me that Elliot could be this badass hacker who could do these incredible things and nobody's on to him. And when you are having conversations with people from your past or from manifestations of your past, it doesn't necessarily equate to you're screaming at someone on a street corner. You know, like, mm-hmm. let's be a little more Shakespearean in how we do that. I think they have the ability <laughs> to do that. Yeah. I do feel that we're going to be seeing some more of Christian Slater, though, because Sam Esmile has said so. I like him. So. <laughs> I, I, I'm real, I've been real lukewarm on Christian Slater recently, but I thought he was great in this. And, and at some point, they might as well flash back to him in high school and just show some footage and pump up the volume. <laughs> I also wonder how the show is going to approach. So now that we've had this, like, global financial chaotic incident, I'm not that interested in, like, then what happens, right? Like, I almost am more interested in the lead-up again than the fallout from the complete collapse of the financial system, right? And not just that, like, the bottom fell out of it, but that debt no longer exists. And, and you know, the sort of chaos that would ensue. And we were, we're already seeing pockets of that with them being like, oh, you can't get cash out of the bank and whatever. But that kind of, like, 
pandemonium. I mean, I'm curious about it. I think it's an interesting topic. But I think for what I like about Mr. Robot, I'd almost rather that every season ends with that. And we just are always going to go back to the previous, to the lead up and watch how everyone kind of got to that party. Right. Do you know, because I think that that would be a great spinoff. I guess I just think like that's that's so interesting. But I am so nervous about how as it gets bigger and because so much of what was cool about the show is how it was like, this is so real, right? Like there, there's, oh, these are the, the company logos that look just like the logos in the show. And these are the things that are actually like true hacking whatevers. And, and you know, I know where that stoop is in New York City and you can like take your picture on it or whatever. You know, like all of these things that felt so authentic. And now we have this moment of profound and like, not that it's not true to the story, it is. But if the show continues moving forward in time, it's no longer plausibly in our world. Because those things have not happened in our world. We do not have, like, the elimination of debt, and we do not have, like, the complete meltdown of all (laughs) bank information or whatever. Well, but if it does, but if they do that, if they (laughs) actually do explore that stuff, then the show becomes true science fiction. True science fiction, Mm. like exploring an alternative vision of what the world could be. And and I love real science fiction, and almost nobody is making it. They're making science fiction-flavored action or science fiction-flavored horror or whatever. And if they if they actually went ahead and made real science fiction out of Mr. Robot, oh boy, would that be something to see? That'd be cool. But I still I like the regular roboting around. <laughs> I don't know. Like I, I already like I liked how human the scale was for the stories and I think the first season where we were very immediately dealing with people. In yeah. the smallest, I mean, literally, like, what are we having for dinner? Why are you taking a shower right now? Kinds I've got of a Groupon for Morton. Yeah, like we had, <laughs> you know, we had these like incredibly like microscopic studies of these characters, some more studied than others. And so to have to change the scope to be like, how do you, does travel exist? I'll, like, go, to shitty, there... I'll go to shitty Marvel, Marvel movies and hard things on Instagram. And <laughs> yeah. it's just great. Like, you know, so then to have to like switch perspective then to be like, how does the world continue to function? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a lot. It's a lot. Take on. That's a lot. That's yeah. a big, that's a big challenge. I love seeing shows that start out as strong as this one and then find their voice and become even stronger. And I do have faith that Mr. Robot is going to be able to do that. The amount of formal control exercised over every frame of the show is really quite wondrous to behold. And it indicates that they have thought about this stuff and they're going to continue to think about it. I feel and, like Mr. Robot will be good even if it sucks. Well, I'm going to watch it even if it sucks. Even if it sucks. There were certain shows that I watched regularly just because they looked and sounded so amazing, even though I didn't like them. Like The Killing Mm -hmm. was one of those and Boardwalk Boardwalk Empire. (laughs) Boardwalk Empire, I would sometimes watch Boardwalk Empire with the sound off. You know, just yeah. because the, it was production design porn, it was unreal. Yeah, you know, and we have the enough hats and the cars and ugh. I mean, Rami Malek is reason alone. And <laughs> He's incredible. He's, good. He's really amazing. And yeah, it's very stylishly done. And I mean, the use of music you wrote about as well. And I love the final song they used in this episode, which was "Sound and Color" by Alabama Shakes. And they play the full song, and it's just like. Their music choices are so spot on in a way that you wouldn't expect. Such a broad range of different styles. Well, it's the best kind of it. mu- it's the best kind of soundtrack selection, yeah. which is the song comes on and you, if you recognize it, there are times where you go, "Why the hell did they choose this?" And then you go, "Wow, that's perfect." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Don't forget to email us your questions or comments at tvquestions@vulture.com. Our producer is Sarah Abdurrahman. Our senior producer is Laura Mayer. Andy Bowers is our executive producer. 
The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. And if you like the show, tell your friends and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Margaret Lyons, and you can find me on Twitter at Marge in Charge. I'm Matt Zoller-Sites, and you can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller-Sites. Thanks for listening. So-